0: Let's roll. This is Counter Charge, your podcast for all things kings of war. Join your hosts, Mark Zylinski, Jeremy Duval, and Rob Fanouf, as they delve into the world of Mantica and bring you in depth coverage of all things Kings of War.
1: Welcome to Countercharge. I'm Matt Gorham. I'm Matt Green. I'm Paul Roberts.
2: I'm Elliot Morrish. I'm Steve Hildrey.
3: And I'm Rob Rupin- Fanuf. And as you just heard, we have five, count them five, Englishmen on the call which i don't think steve this is probably the first time we've had this much english on the call
4: it's it's a it's about time mate
2: that's all i can say
3: absolutely today we have four new voices on the podcast let's find out a little bit about each of them uh, elliot let's start with you are you the one northern king guy that we all like
2: yeah I, i'm nice one, one that one actually likes and doesn't want anything that's why people like me
3: it says the current
4: uk number one i just thought
2: well, I- current for now but i think i'm the only one not to have won masters or clash of kings so i first got into kings of war at the start of second edition um i used to play warhammer fantasy before that um quite a lot in tournaments um so when the the world blew up um i sort of was looking around for a new game um and a few guys that were quite big on the tournament scene in in warhammer um suggested kings of war really and we we sort of got into it as a, as a group quite early and, and ran with it from there. Um, uh, I think my, my second ever game was against Nick Williams, which was a bit of a, a baptism of a fire, but also a great way to learn. Um, and so sort I of went from there, really. I've been playing war games in general since I was about eleven, with Warhammer and Lord of the Rings, and started the usual way. Um, and, yeah, I've played Kings of War all the way through to second edition. Um, in terms of a TO, we, we started it as a, as a group, so, so I think we'll go into it a bit later, but it's not quite as thankless for us because we, we split it between four of us. Um, but for us, we, we started TOing mainly because we wanted to run more tournaments and there wasn't enough tournaments for us in the north of England, and we wanted to go to them. So the way we run it is that um, because there's four of us, one of us TOs and the other three get to play, uh, and then we all take it in turns. So it's, it's ideal for us, really.
3: No, that's, that's me. We also have on the show a duo, Matt and Paul, who run the Kings of Hertz. Is, I'm assuming that's a play on words.
5: Because it's short for HarperJay. It's just got the weird spelling that HarperJay has. So, yeah, it was a play on words. And we were so pleased with it when we thought of it. We thought it we was so clever. It gives us a logo and everything. We started about a year ago now, I think. Um, uh, just over a year. Just over a year ago. We... J- been to some tournaments up north, we've been to some of the Beers of War tournaments and they were all double tournaments and they were great fun but there was nothing in the south of England that we could find or incredibly little, there'd been one one tournament somewhere near London and everything else is sort of uh, west of England or the southwest. so we thought oh we need something, let's see if people want to come to it and um, turns out they did only actually been playing Kings of War ourselves for less than a year at that point, I think. We we're you know, quite late to the quite late to the show. But um we played Warhammer and Warhammer Forty Thousand and Saga and Hero Quest and Space Crusade and everything going back to the eighties, but um yeah, Kings of War was, was quite new to us. Um ironically got into it through Kings of War Historical, which was a, a weird segue into it. Um we had gone Warhammer Warhammer 40,000 then I bought some Romans, then we started playing saga and kind of dropped Warhammer when it all went a little bit pe on um, and then I found this king of historical book I thought well I can play with my Romans at the same time as my friend plays with his beastmen and stuff so we started playing it and thought actually this game's really quite good um, and then started playing with all the old fantasy models and started moving on to bimantic stuff so i think that covers both
6: of it paul pretty much yeah we've we've started gaming at the same time with each other so our, our stories are pretty aligned but uh, yeah the, the the toing sort of came about because we wanted to grow the scene in the southeast which uh, uh, as uh, will come out of this uh, these conversations is uh, is definitely growing so uh, i think that's yeah. gone rather well <laughs>
5: No, jealousy. We, we would look to the north, and don't forget, to us in the south, the north is pretty much everything up from about what's the gap. So the Midlands, the north, it all kind of merges together. And it just looked like there were hundreds of tournaments, and there were two or three a weekend, and then we had nothing. So we thought we'd start doing some. And to be fair, just before we started, um, the chaps in Bexley were doing their Bexley Reaper tournaments but they hadn't quite got going when we started looking into it. Um, so, yeah, it's not just us. There are
3: quite a few around now, but it's good. And last but not least, we have Matt Gorm. So I'm uh, I'm currently
1: going for a bit of a second renaissance in my uh, toy soldier lifestyle at the moment. I grew up and got some squats and uh, some Citadel paints from a guy at school uh, sometime in the 80s. Uh, and then played a bit of Space Crusade, and then went to the little local hobby shop and was kind of tinkering around, and then Games Workshop turned into town. And uh, that was my life, I think, through my uh, years in the 90s. I uh, played up to about fifth edition in Fantasy, and maybe second or third edition in 40k, and then kind of drifted away for a few years. And then about two years ago, started get back into board games, started finding all my own minis. Um, started finding unfortunately the sales sites on facebook which is a bad idea and ended up buying uh, some pikemen off a guy at a train station who uh, said i should if i intended to use them at all i said i don't know i'm just going to paint them and then he said well you should uh you should check out this game it's called kings of war and i'd never heard of it because i'd been so steeped in the gw propaganda that i didn't think anything else existed outside of it I'm meant to arrange a game and. He didn't turn up, but the guy that did turn up to play me was a certain Dan Reed. Um, so a year on from messing around with a few games from him, I went to my first ever war gaming tournament for anything, which was one of Matt and Paul's events, Jack of Hearts doubles. And then I kind of thought, well, they spend so much time doing all these tournaments in the southeast, as to the marks of kind of Grant and Mike, Mark, Mark down in the bottom right of uh, London. That I thought, well can't be that hard i'll I'll give it a go um so yeah i kind of tentatively looked around for a venue and uh, here for some advice really i've got some ideas about what i want to do but i just kind of wanted to give an opportunity for more people to play south of the river and uh something that matt and paul and the guys could turn up to rather than having to run around running it all day
4: i'm, re- I'm really excited about today's episode because um as you've guessed from the intro we're covering all things tournaments so when i found Matt Gorham was organizing a tournament, I thought it'd be a great idea, uh, an excuse for us to talk about the UK tournament scene. Um, and I think we're, we're going to do something similar for the US scene. But I, I wanted to start off to explore what makes a good tournament here in the UK and what goes into organizing and running events uh, in the UK. So that's why I invited uh, you know, somebody from the north, a big name from the north, some big names from the south. And then, uh, and and Matt as a a brand new TO to talk about some ideas and how we could kind of uh, mix it up. So we've done a bit of uh, why people wanted to do tournaments. So let's go into the what of tournaments. So let's start off with talking about tournament names and themes. So we see lots of different ones um, and the UK ones are, I think, slightly different from the US. So, you know, do you think the names of tournaments matters? How do you brand them? So let's start off with Elliot um, up in the north, because although Northern Kings is a really well-known brand, you don't. You don't go with that as a tournament name, do you?
2: We keep talking about changing this. So we originally started off um, having a different name for every, every event, um, but not really putting a whole lot of thought into why that was or if we should do it differently. Um, and I think for, for one-day events, I don't think it matters so much um, because one-day events don't tend to be the same time every year. They're, they can be different you know, point limits or styles every year. Um, but what we decided with our, our weekend event that we ran a few months ago was that actually we, we really want to change the name now so we can have one name that will be the same every year. And everybody knows that in June time, the Northern Kings GT will be at that sort of time. Um, and I can't remember what we called it, which is a, a, probably not the reason why it's not a great name. Um, <laughs> so I think they, they do matter. Um, but I think they matter a lot more for the weekend events. Um, because they're the ones you sort of, you need that branding and you need that recognition that it's going to be the same every year, Um, that you're going to come back to So like the four foot snake GT, everybody knows that as the four foot snake GT, even though it does have a slightly different name each time, no one calls it by that. They just know it's the four foot snake GT. Um, But whereas all the, like the one day ones at black dragon, I can't tell you what any of their names are and they're different each time, but it doesn't matter because they, they jump around really. So I think, I think they do matter for the weekend ones where you need to build that bit of brand recognition for each because they're going to be the same time each year. But for the one day, I think as long as you've got something catchy that you can grab somebody on Facebook, it doesn't really matter what they're called, personally.
4: Matt and Paul, do you echo that? Because you know, the Kings of Hearts tournaments, they're, they're just the Kings of Hearts tournaments, right? They're Jack of Hearts. How do you brand yours and how did you go through that kind of decision?
6: Uh, yeah, as, as Matt mentioned before, I mean, with the uh, when we were looking at names, the because Hearts, Heart for Cheer, it just sort of spark of inspiration. And the branding came with it. Uh, playing cards were an automatic brand for us. Um, so when we were just running our first tournament as a, a tester to see if this is something we wanted to do, before we'd even run it, we'd already kind of decided that um, we were going to do many more and how we were going to brand going forward. So Kings of Hearts, Kings plural for our doubles. Uh, Jack of Hearts is for our singles events um, and in fact next weekend we've got our first um, Kings of War Vanguard event which is uh, Aces of Hearts so it uh, just sort of came together fairly organically we didn't really need to put much once the name was there we didn't need to put much thought into what we were going to name future events it just sort of
5: happened. I quite like having consistent names when we started we started going to the Bears of War events and they were all called Bears Beers of War events so we'd been to one, we knew we'd like the next one. We knew we'd like the next one. We knew where it was going to be. It was predictable. And then there was this big sea of, of other events that I assumed were spread all over the place. It wasn't until I started looking into the, actually trying to write a list of all the events, that I realised that most of them were Black Dragon, or an awful lot of them were, but I couldn't tell that. So it was quite nice when you could see, ah, I, I know what I'm expecting there, because it, it's one of those ones and the name carries on and it gives it some sort of it gives you a clue as somebody who doesn't quite know what's going on in the tournament scene. I'm sure if you're sort of very experienced in the Kings of War tournament scene, you probably know all these and you recognise the names of the TOs that are doing it. But when you're first starting out and you've kind of got no idea, it, it helps give you a little bit of, a bit of grounding in, you know, that's those people they're over there, that's those people they're over there
2: just just jump really jumping on that one Interesting. the beers of war did all have different names but they were very clever they had beers of war presents and then it would be a different name for each one so they kept That's that right. very clear we are beers of war and then they were called like the, the wine, you know, wine mixer so they all had different names but nobody ever noticed that bit they just saw the really big cool beers of war branding that Luke and, and Lee were really good at pushing forward
5: mm. the Shroud of the Reaper chaps do the same thing there's been three Shroud of the Reapers they've all got a subtitle which is useful for telling them apart but you end up calling them shroud one and shroud two and and those sorts of things
4: it's kind of like an assurance of quality if you've been to one you know that kings of hearts is a decently run event you know what you're going in for and that, that's why you go for it when's queen of hearts going to come is that like a cross-dressing event that uh, everyone <laughs> has <have> to
6: <laughs> you're not the first to have asked that question <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, a
4: cosplay event. I always noticed that the US tournaments seem to have a bit more flavour than the UA. You've got TNT, you know, Orc Town. These kind of and they're kind of quite evocative. Do you think we're missing a trick? And like Beers of War is a great example where you know it's a fantastic brand.
2: In some ways, we are. We're very British about where we can't. You can't be too effusive about anything. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <there. laughs> we're Trying to fuck that. I mean the, the the reason we we brand ours by the Northern Kings was because it was never about never was supposed to be about one person. It was always supposed to be about team about so so that it didn't matter who was toing it. The, the Northern Kings, you knew you were going to get, as you say, a certain package. Um, it doesn't matter who that person was, um, and it it took all the pressure off one person. So that's why ours are Northern Kings presents rather than a, a big powerful name or a group, but. I do think our, our tournament names and everything do seem a bit more restrained, maybe.
4: So, Matt, obviously your tournament hasn't happened yet. Have you thought about branding? Have you thought about naming and, and where you want to go with that?
2: Yeah, I,
1: I guess for all the reasons you said already, I wanted to be kind of sure there was some longevity in whatever I picked and uh, something that was reasonably simple and memorable. And due to just kind of life of looking out for things and marketing and stuff that I do at work, just understanding that something simple that you can make into like nice little avatars for advertising and stuff like that. So yeah, Matt uh, has helped me out massively with the the graphics. So I came up with a little, little name and stuff and then uh, yeah, he's drawn some pictures for me and mm-hmm. then I think pushing that out through, through Facebook um, as the prime method and then Twitter and Instagram as well, building those up as well making sure that there's a constant feed on there. I'm hoping will help it's going for the kind of little and often approach um with kind of stain of war being the uh the header for all of the events and then building them up so the first one's going to be called stain of blood which is a bit more evocative i think and uh should get some uh angry people involved as well
5: a few people have used sort of blood and death and, and those sort of subtitles so i think we do get the um slightly more evocative things, but they're a bit more morbid in the
4: card. That a UK thing. So that S T A S T A N E, right? So it's uh, although it's yeah, a plan, right? Yeah, there's there's
1: a uh, there, there was a terribly cunning plan behind this. So there's a there's a road not far from the area that I live and where the venue is going to be uh, called Stain Street. It's uh, an ancient road, so I thought it'd be quite nice because the tournament venue is pretty close to that, to play on that. And I hoped as well by having Stain of War being the brand and Blood only being in the event, that if I get some huge problems with people taking umbrage or marketing being a nightmare I can just drop the blood off the event side of things and then revert to something else
4: so how about for example like one versus two day tournaments you talked a little bit about that already but in terms of branding being more important for two-day events it, it's fair to say that the vast majority of UK tournaments are one days which is a massive contrast to the US where I really only see news about the the big two-day events why do you think it is that um one-day events are are more popular here
1: only, only for looking around, trying to find a venue for a weekend for a tournament. The cost is quite innovative, I think, unless you can find a gaming store that's wishing to chip in. Trying to find like a village hall or a hotel or something like that for a whole weekend and taking a punt and getting enough people down there to cover that cost. I just found it too difficult to, to find enough space for the right price.
2: I, I know we all moan about travel time, but I, I can travel from my house in an hour to eight different gaming venues. Um, where tournaments are. So it's it's so much easier to run one day events. Um I know in the US the idea of driving eight hours for four games, three games, and then driving back again is just totally unfeasible. Whereas to me, I could literally drive an hour, play three games and drive back and be home in time to have my tea. So I think we, we physically we, we can do one day as more than two days. I also find the the Kings of War community is is a bit older than other wargame communities I've been in before. So I'm more likely to have families and children. And two days, uh, they're a big commitment if you've got you know families and wives and, and people you've got to, to say, can I disappear for the whole weekend? You're not going to see me until Sunday, Sunday evening, really. Um, so I think to the UK, that's probably the reason behind it is that we can have one day or so we do, I think, anyway.
5: I think that's exactly what it is. If every, if you can do a one dayer and you can still get enough people to play, you're going to get everybody who otherwise wouldn't be to do a two dayer. I cannot do two days. Maybe one a year at an absolute push. You know, just going up to Beers of the War once. We did both days of it because um, they did singles on the Sunday and doubles on the Saturday. By the time I'd driven up there, paid for a meal that evening, got a hotel had breakfast the next day in the hotel, gone to the second day of the tournament, it had cost me as much as it would have been to take my wife and daughter away for a weekend. And doing that regularly is sort of turning to her and saying, we're going to have less family holidays so I can go and play toy soldiers. Whereas saying to her, I'm just going to go and do an event. I'm I'm going to leave at 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm going to be back at 8 o'clock tonight. We can go out on Sunday. It's a much easier sell from a family point of view.
4: Yeah, I get that. I think um, I think cost is what is part of it. I th- some of it, I, th- I can I can kind of imagine some of the the US listeners kind of throwing their hands up and saying, eh, "I drop two hundred dollars or this and the other and such." But there is something reflecting, isn't there? That a travel in the UK is a nightmare, and you know we don't have long straight roads, and all the roads are really congested. Two petrol costs four, or five times as much as it does uh, in the US in the UK. So that travel time is exponentially more because you're having to pay. And if you go on the train, it costs more than it does to drive so there, there is that little bit do you think there's a benefit of one over two day tournaments i mean i think it probably it just speaking personally i think it might reduce some of that camaraderie a little bit because you don't have that evening together you know you don't hang out as a group quite so much and that reduces some of the social side but do you think there are benefits to having one days
2: over two days i prefer two days in an ideal world there would all be two days and we could all come to all of them and they'd be, be brilliant but I think that I mean the nice thing about a one day is you can be a bit more free and loose with your list that you take. You can take something a bit sillier. Cause if you take it and you hate it, well you've only got to play three or four games with it. Um and you can just be a bit a bit more loose at it really. I also tend to find my painting for a one day might not be completed or as good as it would be for a two day. I, I use the two days as my my big events where my army will be completely painted and be exactly where I want it. Whereas my one days are a lot more getting the list ready, getting everything sorted and things might just have three colors basic on them but they'll be ready for the the weekenders but as i say i I would i would prefer two days every single time for all the reasons you said i absolutely love the social side of it i love the evenings and i love the, the full weekend away um but yeah reality bites sometimes and you can't do that for every every event Funnily enough, that's something I'm looking
6: forward to. Um, I'm unique on this podcast and I've not actually participated in a singles Kings of War tournament yet, even though I'm a TO, um, which is slightly unusual. Um, I will, however, be going to Clash of Kings this year. So that's going to be quite uh, quite interesting for me. Um, but I'm looking forward to that. As you say, that social side, there's uh, some things going on on the Friday night beforehand. I'm going to go up the night before, so I've fresh for the first day gaming um so there's two evenings where i'll be able to catch up with some some of those people i've met in the community uh, further up north who i don't get to see that often um and just play some friendly games be it kings of war as practice games or ball games or something else um as well as then getting two full days of gaming so uh, i i've booked the monday off work because i'm guessing i'm going to be quite tired after two days but <laughs> <laughs> um i've done that before after running um matt and i ran some of franticon uh, in february in march this year and uh, yes i needed that day at home <laughs> just to uh, recover because it was quite full on but uh, no it should be fun and
2: i now book off every single monday after a weekend tournament because i've learned it's not worth doing it otherwise um y- you will always get gamers flu you will always be a little bit hungover.
5: I think there are advantages from a kind of technical point of view to the 2 dayers Though, um, I think when we talk about scoring, we can come back to it. But there's no getting away from it: a one-game, a one-day tournament gets less games in, and it's harder to get a split between players. And then you fall back on sort of secondary scoring systems. So, if you can get sort of six games in on the two-day, that that has its advantages. If you can get people there for the whole weekend that, that really comes down to the problem can you get people to commit every other weekend a whole weekend
4: ellie you've just you've just run your well, i don't know if it was you that ran it but northern kings just ran their first two-day singles tournament am i right and do you think you you know we'll see more yeah. of that kind of event in the future
2: we, we, we're, the northern kings we're definitely going to run it again we're going to do it every year um we hope next year obviously we, we had to change ours over to a singles event quite last minute um, so we actually only had five weeks to promote it, which is why, as Will mentioned a bit, my advertising was a bit um, intense. <laughs> we um, I don't know if the UK needs more 2 days. I'd, I'd like to see the ones we've got become bigger rather than us have more of them. Um, for all the reasons that we've we've said that people can't commit to lots of them, I would rather – I think we're at the stage now where we've got five, maybe six, two-day events across the calendar. Um, and they're all quite nicely spread out. And I'd, I'd like it to stay probably at that sort of numbers and then for those to grow rather than new ones to come along. So we got 24 players this time, um, which we were delighted about for a five-week turnaround. Um, but I'd really want to push it up to at least 40 next time, if not a lot more. Um, I know the Forfitt Snake guys got close to 40. Um, and I, I think even more so, wasn't down in London. Um, so I, I'd, I'd love to start pushing to Clash of Kings numbers or tournaments like Clash of Kings, um, they're looking at 80 plus, whereas all the independent ones are maxing out around 40 at the minute. So I'd rather have fewer, much bigger two-dayers um, because then I just think there's a, there's something a about the spectacle of seeing 100 war gamers in one room all playing Kings of War is a lot better than having 10 tournaments going on across the country that only have 20 players. Um, so I, I don't think we need more of them. I think we need the ones that we have to become bigger, personally.
4: It's fair to say, isn't it, that you know we rarely see doubles in the UK. It's another thing, um, apart from the Mantic doubles and Kings of Hearts. So, you know, Paul and Matt, why do you think that is? What made you want to run doubles tournaments?
5: They were fun. Um, I think you end up running the events that you like to go to, even if you're not going to it. It's subconsciously, subconscious and you can't help but do it. Um, and we've gone to the Beers of Water tournaments, and, and frankly, they were great fun. And, and having you know if if kings of war is a social game and the whole thing about social time having four people around a table having a chat for you know for the length of the game that, that's twice as many people to talk to it's different i don't think you know we could all be doubled because i think people would get bored of it quite quickly but a few a year where you get to see twice as many people yeah it's a, it's a bonus and also going back to
6: what we were saying before about trying to build the scene in the southeast we wanted to try and encourage the next generation into the hobby that we all love so having doubles meant that um, some players were able to uh, come along with uh, their children as their gaming partner and get them uh, involved in the tournament scene without the uh the Pressures of it being a singles tournament, and they're there effectively on their own. Um, uh, we've had uh, a, cu- a couple of people have, have brought their eleven-year-old children along as their gaming partner, and they've had a really great time. And um, one, uh, John Fox and his daughter, um, they're uh, regular attendees now. So uh, uh, hopefully, um, his daughter will uh, go on to continue playing and uh, and get into the the singles tournaments when she's uh, when she meets that minimum
5: age limit. I mean, otherwise, there's one tournament um, much further south on the south coast that does an under-15s tournament. But other than that, you can't really have children playing in a singles tournament. It it doesn't really work unless it's entirely focused around that. Doubles, yeah, it it works because (laughs) their parents can basically take over as much as they need to, but they still get to play. And everybody enjoyed it. Nobody... Tool had ever come to us and said, "Oh, I really wish we didn't have to play with the children." Everyone's come and gone. That was a really good game. I really enjoyed that. Brilliant.
4: I suppose it's the fact, isn't it, that you know, a lot of tournament players are quite competitive. If you, doubles doesn't count towards your ranking points, so sweet, sweet ranking points you don't get them for a doubles tournament, and that's, that's the that big
2: thing. Huge, really, is a ranking part. I mean, uh, hopefully, I mean, I've been asking the because uh, there's a newly formed Masters committee uh, that's going to be working out the rankings formula. Um, I've been shouting and shouting and banging the drum to include doubles in that. I can't see any reason why doubles shouldn't be included in your your ranking score because no, usually doubles will have less players there because you'd have to do it by team. Um, so they're not going to make huge scores, but they are going to be something. Um, the, I think the issue with them not being ranked is that if you're somebody like me that cares about your ranking score and is looking to get into Masters and you've only got six free weekends a year, and you you maybe you need a big score to try and get yourself into that top sixteen and you've got a choice between a doubles and a singles, you're gonna to go to the ranked singles event. And I and I know that um Lee Fellows who used to run Bears of War, he really he thinks the ranking system is what killed Bears of War. Um because he's saying that when you were asking players to come to, as you were saying, the singles on the singles on the Sunday or the doubles on the Saturday, players were saying, Oh well, I need those ranking points, so I'm not gonna come and get drunk on the Saturday. I'm going to come on the Sunday instead. Um, so I, I think I, to some extent, I agree with him. And I think if you bring it back into the rankings, um, that just fixes everything, really, for me. Um, I love doubles events. I'd love to come to a lot more of them. Um, but I also I like my rankings points, and I like to know where I am on the table, and I want to get into masters. So I, I, I don't see why. I don't think we're a big enough community in the UK or anywhere that we can say only these very specific tournaments. Could be ranked. I think we should be saying every single event should be ranked. I don't, I don't see why not. You, you're still playing the same opponents and you're still playing the same game. I don't I don't see the difference, personally, between it. That's just my, my gripe about it. Yeah, we've had people
5: that have come because it's not ranked. and The first one I went to was Beers of War because it didn't look like it was going to be a big, stressful, competitive thing. I I come into this thinking, oh, the tournaments going to be a horrible scary place with all these really full-on people. I went to be as a ward because it wasn't. Now, as it turns out, going to singles tournaments as well, they're also lovely, friendly places full of lovely people. But when you go into that very very first one, when you're told, no, this isn't part of that really competitive scene, sometimes it's a nice sort of settles people in, and we are trying to get more players into it, especially in the south where they just are nowhere near as many players as there are up north. It'd be nice if do was ranking points for or its own separate... We've been talking to Lee back when he was still doing his events about there being a sort of separate ranking system, a bit more of a sort of humorous one for for doubles. Yeah, I suppose it depends on your community. If you if you know a lot of high-ranked players, then ranking points are going to be quite vital to you. To most of the people that came to the Kings of War doubles, they're not that important. They just come for a laugh. And then when we do the singles tournament and we can do ranking points, we don't tend to get many people that we didn't get at the doubles. Um, it doesn't bring in a huge number of people. It brings in a couple, but but they don't tend to say it's expressly because of the ranking points. I think it depends on your community. It depends on who you're, you know, who's going to come, who you are used to playing with. I don't know. I, I can see, totally the Elliot's point. I'm not sure.
2: I think for us, it was more that we had, because we were getting to the point where you've got a tournament every week, for five or six weeks in a row, and you can only you can choose one of those five. Which one do you choose? I think yeah. was the, was a well, problem. That. So people don't don't have the availability to go to every weekend. Real life gets in the way. So you've got yeah. you've got a choice of two on the same weekend or the one back to so back. Which one do you pick? And I think sadly people were picking the ranking one over the doubles one because the ones are the ranking points. Yeah,
5: the, the, the area makes a massive
2: difference to us.
5: Short of a reasonably long journey. There was nothing. There was one tournament in the East a year, and you could go up, up a little bit, um, and you could get some that were a couple of hours' drive away for, for very, very local, for local people, for local tournaments. There is not as much competition down our way, um, so people will come to a doubles tournament because it's playing. They're, they're never going to be kind of going, oh, but actually. I would rather go up to Element Games because a lot of the people in our area say, well, we're not going to go to Element Games for anything short of a two-day GT because the three-and-a-bit-hour drive there and the three-and-a-bit-hour drive back means that it can have all the ranking points it wants. Um, yeah. It's just not viable.
4: Rob, you're, you're possibly the the world's most famous doubles tournament organiser. Are the are, are US tourn? is it your doubles tournament? Is it ranked? Does it count?
3: The US is a little different. Obviously, the UK is one big region. Whereas in our area, it's eight regions. And so each region treats some differently. Some allow doubles, some don't. Well, the region that I'm in, the Southeast, did allow doubles. And the way we did it was, I think, one of you guys mentioned. We just treat each pair as a player. And each player gets that score. Basically, if you have 24 players on 12 double pairs, you treat it like a 12-player event. And that's how the scores get allocated. But each player on that team gets the same score. In the U.S., we've got master qualifiers that are doubles events. We have a master's qualifier that are a team event which um, now the team event's a little different because even though it's a four-man team, you don't play as a team, right? You It's more, more that ETC style. Each player gets their own individual scoring, basically. If you make things a rank, a rankings or a master's qualifier, whatever, whatever moniker you want to use, you're going to draw more people. The flip side of that is, I know some people say, well, if it's a master's qualifier, that means it's going to be a more competitive scene. That's not always the case. If our master's event is 64 players and it's probably the most pleasant room. It's competitive, but it's respectful and it's, you know, it's not it's not scary or intimidating. Being a rankings event, it just gets you more players there, which is always a good thing.
2: I would totally agree on that as well, that making it a ranked event, in my opinion, has never made it more competitive or has changed the mindset of any of the players there um, that have come. Uh, I think in the UK, every single singles event, as long as it has more than 10 players, is a, is a ranked event. Um, or, or can be a ranked event. And I think for the for the players that are there and care about the rankings points are going to play exactly the same way as they would if the, if it isn't a ranked event. Um, in, in my opinion, and as you said, the, the UK Masters I found to be one of the most laid-back tournaments I've ever been to. Um, it, it was brilliant. It was just a great atmosphere. We were all there just enjoying the fact we were all at the Masters and enjoying the game. Um, but yeah, I I, I I do see the, the point that, that doubles is an excellent gateway into it. I just think it's a it's a shame at the minute that because there's no option to make it ranked, I think it's putting some people off or could potentially be putting people off. And I just, I do, I think that's the barrier that's so easily removed that why not remove it? Because then you can get more players turning up to doubles. Um, I, I'd love to run a Northern Kings doubles tournament, but I don't think we'd ever do it while it's not a ranked event.
5: I, I'm not in any way saying that in actual life Singles events have been any different to the doubles events from the, from the type of people. I'm saying it was purely the perception of people that had been to nothing. It, it was an easier sell for those people, but actually, having been to them, it is the same people. And that's my point. When we run our singles and run our doubles, one's been ranked, one hasn't. We've gotten the same players pretty much. So they've been just as lovely in the singles. No more competitive, no less competitive. Uh, it was purely about perception before you step into the community, it was, was what I was. Stop
1: talking about do you think that if uh if you allow it to be ranked you being the cynic that i am you get people building lists that are potentially broken though like the whole allies system is there so that it it means that you can only take x y or z and you know a certain percentage of your force but if you've got two forces together i mean i'm not seeing it happen but you could theoretically have some pretty hardcore combinations
2: in in
5: you know using the our first tournament the lists were all very um let's have a laugh at sort of fun by the second tournament the the let's take a bit more seriously lists were starting to creep in people played perfectly brilliantly everybody was lovely but i think people are already starting to think oh actually you know I, I can bring the list i would take to a single tournament through this um but i, I, I do agree i don't think it actually in real life make this huge amount of difference
2: and um, it's we, just end up some, more people
4: to play with are people scared maybe that you know you know i'm going to team up with tom robinson and then let him play and get the free ranking but i think it's nonsense isn't it it's just not going to happen realistically good players are going to choose a decent uh, a matched opponent and it's just going to be shaken out so let's hope that nick and uh the other members of his committee are maybe listening to this and can have a little bit of a rethink because I think there's been some pretty persuasive arguments. We'll we'll have to just uh, um, beat him up. It's fine. We'll just pin him down and beat him up. It's fine.
2: We'll work on it. I I, I know where I live. It's all right.
4: (laughs) Excellent. So let's move on from that. Let's talk about uh, points levels. So in the UK, you know, it's it's fair to say the standard used to be 2,000 points, right? It was every tournament, 2,000, 2,000, 2,000. But this year, I've seen everything from you know, one thousand up. To, I think I've just seen a three thousand point tournament. So, you know, um, that might be just because people have got a bit bored of doing two thousand. Want something different and interesting. But what's behind the choices that you guys have made in your tournament? So, Elliot, let's start with you.
2: Um, we started two thousand because um, it's interesting actually. Because when we first started running tournaments, we, we found that I think everybody had got a bit bored of doing two thousand points, and so we're doing fifteen hundred or twenty hundred or doing something a bit different and bringing their own. Special characters and people in. So, we decided when we were first running events that our unique selling point would be not to have a unique selling point. It would be out of the book, vanilla Kings of War, um, because we were actually the only ones at the time doing that. We were the only people running 2000 point tournaments that you just came to and you just played four solid games. Um, we've been saying actually just before we found out about um third edition coming out that we were going to start raising our points up to maybe 2200 2300 um and that was from playing a lot on universal battle and and playing against quite a lot of american players that all they want to play the 2200 points because they're practicing for tournaments and going actually this is this is a lot of fun this you can get a lot more toys in um and I think as people's collections start to grow you can now start having a few more points. I think it originally started in the UK at 2,000 points because a lot of people didn't have particularly big Kings of War armies. Um, we, we've got to remember that the tournament scene here is still only about three years old. Um, and so people were just starting to grow their, their armies where we're now at a point where people have collections of 10,000 points and are cherry-picking what to, to use. So we, we we never really made a massive decision to go at 2,000 points. We just decided to keep it standard. Um, but we we are looking to... Well, we were looking to go go up now, but I think third edition is probably going to have changed that a bit because who knows what the, the standard points will be when that, that falls into place.
1: How
5: much are you, aiming for for stage of blood that?
1: Well, it's a bit up in the air now because of third edition, but I was looking at 14.95 because that's the uh, kind of one of each limit to stuff. I guess I'm, I'm still relatively new to the scene, so nothing I'll say holds a huge amount of weight compared to some veterans, but... I like the idea of challenging people to write lists for smaller points values. Um, I think there's a there's a limit that you can get to for that. I think that some armies play a heck of a lot better at 1,000 points uh, than others. Um, but I think as soon as you get above 2,000 points, the fact that you can take all the toys, uh, just personally, for me, it just means that there's less of a challenge because you know you're going to face all the big nasty stuff. Whereas if it's 2,000 points or even a little bit less, then... People have got to think about what they put in, so that's why I was trying to get to maybe for, for a stain of blood. But I'll have to figure out what on earth is happening with army selection come third edition because we're going to run it with third edition rules. Um, but yeah, I was looking for 1495.
5: That fits in taking looking at purely the tournaments in the southeast of England. Um, Clive and the Frey tournaments uh, will both have been 1,000 points. The last, um Um, Shadow of the Reef tournament was 1600 I think plus a special character that you've got free our next one will probably be 1000 points for singles Um, so we're we're kind of going in in a different direction because I think whatever argument you give starts with a sentence I want more and it's I want more toys in my army or I want more games in the day and if you are doing singles you can, don't get me wrong, you can get Four two thousand point games in in a day. If everybody's really quite good and quite experienced, but but some of the ones that we've done where there's been a lot of quite new people, people find it a bit harder to stick to the clock for that sort of for that number of games. We've tried to give more time per game or less points per game. If that makes sense. So we've done three games in a day tournament, which immediately limits his ranking points. So immediately you don't get of many players that are after ranking points because you
2: haven't got enough games. um there the is, thing that I've asked to
1: there is a cunning yeah. plan as well because um, because you guys are doing so well generating um, noise up in Hertfordshire for the doubles events. If people come to yours for one thousand points each doubles, all they've got to do is paint another four hundred ninety-five points and they can uh, come to the next stage up. They don't have to, you know, paint another thousand. That's the thing I'm also going for.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: It makes it more newbie friendly, doesn't it, in some cases? I think maybe because the player base down south is smaller, that having a smaller points value is less intimidating. I don't have to paint, you know, 20 units. I could just paint 10 units and actually I, I can I can bring my my newly-fledged army to a smaller points value tournament. And I, I, I think it's really interesting because there is a balance question, isn't there, whereby you're absolutely right that some armies play a lot better at smaller points values um, and some armies play a lot better at, at higher points values and I, so I looked at Andy Ransom's you know I watched his YouTube videos and his army absolutely kicked ass at 1500 points but then he really struggled when he had to upgrade it you know he didn't it just didn't match up or maybe it was the other way around I can't remember it was um frantic but there, there was a balance question isn't there where you, you you're just looking at stronger and in some ways the game was very much balanced around that two thousand twenty two fifty 50 point value I'm not a rules committee member, so I don't know if that's the case or not, but that's my assumption.
2: All of the, um, all of the playtesting has always been done at 2,000 points. Um, so when you, when you look at uh, the lists and how they, they build it, you assume a 2,000-point list. Um, that doesn't mean it's not balanced outside of those points, but it's always been looked at how much can you get in and how does a 2,000-point list compare to another 2,000-point list. Um, and you mm-hmm. are right. that There are definitely some that do better. I mean, things like undead do very well at low points.
5: It also becomes a different to sort of a game. It becomes a bit more rock, paper, scissors because getting you can't, you can't get a bit of everything into it. You, you can't physically do it. So my last 1,000 points list was kings and men. It was all um, the barbarian formation, the female barbarian, the uh, berserker formation. Everything was three-plus um, defence. I was going up against people thinking, if I turn up against somebody who can shoot me, I'm going to die. If I turn up against somebody who's melee, LA, I'm going to win. And it became a bit more, I don't it's a bad thing or a good thing, but you, you take your list, it has to be specialist almost by, by default. And then you see what would happen when you went up against somebody else's specialist list, there's no room for, um, oh, well, I've lost that unit. It doesn't matter. I've got a load more of them because you probably can't afford much. So I think it's a different type of strategy. And it may not be what the game's balanced for. I don't know. I found it an awful lot of fun. Um, but it was a very different game to larger points games, which is kind of why I'd like to see both still existing. Because some days you want to take everything out and see whether you can do synergy across a, a huge army. And sometimes you want to specialise in something, play a game in 45 minutes and bash through it and see what happens.
2: Look, Nick Williams ran a, a really interesting event a couple of years ago in Leeds, and it was it was six 1,000-point games in a day you brought two lists and so you you played both lists you had to use both lists during the day um and it and you decided before the game which list you were going to use so you could bring two really specialized lists either way so i brought a wall of defense six or a wall of defense three really fast and then you could decide before the game but you didn't know what your opponent was going to pick so you, you saw your opponent's two lists and they saw your two lists and then you had a nice little bluff against each other of oh, do I use the slow and steady or do I use the fast and killy? And it was a, a really nice um, way of playing it, actually. I'd have loved that. That sounds brilliant.
4: Some TOs, they they balance out, don't they? The 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 points that they put in by adding special characters. So we talked about Shroud of the Reaper the mo- and they always have a special monster. So that 1,600 points was actually more like an 1,850, 1,900 points. So either they add a monster or an individual. Do you guys like special characters in events? Uh, you know, um, what do you think? What do you think makes a decent character from Event? Because the temptation, isn't it? And I've seen some of the US tournaments, is to give ludicrously powerful. While you know, every rule, let's give every rule. Let's, do you, do you let's like-
2: give it all of the things? Uh, I, I do like it. I I think you're right. I think some people go very too far with it. <laughs> it's just, um, I think what, I, I'm a big believer of less is more. And people love Kings of War because it's simple. And then. They make their own characters and forget that they love Kings of War because it's simple and just give it everything. And you just do just, why? Why have you done that? Um, what What I would say to people is when you're designing one of these is use the community. So build it, design it, and then if, we, we're really, really good in the UK. We've got a Facebook page just for the uh, TOs. Put it on there and say, guys, what do you think? Can you please play test this? Can you tear it apart? Can you break it? I've been to quite a few events where the first time any of these monsters or all these characters have ever been used on the table is game one. And they've not thought it through. And it either does nothing or it's ludicrously powerful. And it just takes over everything. And whereas if you'd have given it to the T.O.s beforehand and just said, would you guys mind us having a read over this? We could have all gone, ooh, that seems a bit powerful. Or that could do with a tweak or this could do with a change. So use that free community that you've got there. That's really helpful. Don't don't think you've got to take it all on yourself. And game design is actually really hard. So you know, use the people around you.
5: I think if you take the um, the Shadow of the Reaper ones, they've done three tournaments now. The first tournament had an individual. The second tournament had a chariot, I think. The third tournament was a monster, and it always represents death, the Shroud of the Reaper, um, and the. Model something cool side of it has always been brilliant, and I think it's one of the best points of that tournament is you get to deal with something very specific and put lots of thought into it. Um, I think their best one was their first one, where it was an individual, where the Reaper had an impact, but it wasn't massive. The the, the army you bought was still the um, sort of like overriding thing. The Reaper was there. It was useful, but it was an individual. It was never going to be massively overpowering. The last one, it was still great fun, but you had this creature, and because it had a small number of attacks with blast D6 and lots of special rules, um, it could be brilliant or it could just completely fail you in a game. And I think there's a danger when the monster gets too powerful and is very random that it can have too much of a swinging effect on the game itself. And I think they, they've thought about it themselves and they're sort of considering what their next, um, next tournament thing is, is going to be.
2: And it, it can also benefit some armies a lot more than others. So if you have, have, happen to have an army that is the same speed as that monster and can keep up with it, you're going to get so much more out of it than if your rest of your army is all cavalry or is all shooting. Um, so it, it it's unbalancing in that sense that if, if it's a speed six monster and you've got a line of speed six units, all of a sudden you get so much more benefit out of that than any other player might do. Yeah.
4: Matt, have you thought about for your for tournament? I know you were thinking about special characters and uh, trying to balance them a little bit. What's been your thought so far?
1: Uh, I've got a couple of ideas for a couple of kind of fluffy characters. Um, and again, before third edition, I was planning on basing some of the rules on some of the historical uh, characters that there are. Um, and I'm playing around with kind of. I like the idea that the Northern guys had, where you could take more than one option, so a uh, choose between kind of a. More combat and a more buffy kind of person. So, looking at a pair of individuals, but uh, I'll have to see all the rules come up with. Yeah, just playing around with some interesting options. But I agree that I'd rather have a slight buff, but trying to make sure that buff is appealing to every single faction is pretty tough. Rather than a, a mega killy kind of old school fourth edition Warhammer style stompy monster.
2: Best example I've ever seen of it was was the four foot snake guys that had the four options. Um, and that was, again, so you could pick the one that suited your arm the most. But also what they did was they took existing units and based it on them. Um, so, for example, one of them was the Beast of Nature with an extra rule on it. Um, one of them was, you know, it, it was an existing unit and then they just added a bit to it. So they already knew it was balanced in the game because it, it was already there. Um, and then what they also did was they they gave these out to a few players and said, guys, here you go. Please try and break these for us. Um, Please play test it. Before they gave it out to 40 players to to go run wild with.
4: I mean, I think scenarios is really important um, in terms of tournaments, people enjoying their time at the tournament. Do you think there are, obviously, third edition is coming and we'd expect scenario changes, right? So, uh, you know, base your answers on that. But do you think there are scenarios that don't play well at tournaments? And do you think there are any that you just have to have? And are there some you have to put restrictions on?
1: I think that... uh, depending on how you do the scoring of the points on a scenario, it has a massive swing. Like I benefited pretty highly from the last event I went to, which was the that Matt and Paul ran for um, dominate, for example, because the, the, the victory points you got were the points from that game and playing ogres. I had a huge amount of unit strength available more than some other armies put together. So, that had a massive impact on my finishing position in the uh, tournament. So I think that, I think you were looking at it anyway, Matt and Paul about maybe trying to refresh that, but yeah, I think. We've the, had a the long up,
5: chat. Yeah. We've been having a chat with um, Mark from Shroud and, and a few other people. You actually, Paul, do you want to take this one? Because you've been quite heavily
6: involved in it. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, as, as, as Matt said, it's, um, because we use scenario points as the first tiebreaker in our scoring system where you've got an imbalance in the possible um, scenario points that different armies can achieve, especially the unit strength ones. Um, you know, uh, Mark from Shroud brought a unit strength zero army to one of our events. He's not going to do very high in that particular scenario. Um, so we're looking at how to band Um, come up with a a single system so maybe we've got between 0 and 4 or 0 and 5 scenario points that are achievable in each of the available scenarios Um, so you don't end up with a a really good victory in one particular game really swaying the balance in your favor um, if the other games don't go as according to plan so um, yeah it's uh, something that Mark's been looking at quite heavily uh, lots of formulas, lots of uh, calculations going into various spreadsheets. Um, but I think we're getting very close to a, hopefully, a fairly common system that we can start using, um, certainly in the uh, in the southeast with the TOs that have been talking, uh, but maybe more generally just so that we've got that balance uh, between the scenarios.
5: We didn't see that coming. Yeah, we'll hold our hands up and say, we just thought, We'll have people win, lose, or draw games. We use that point for break ties. We originally used kill, you know, um, amount killed as our tiebreaker. We thought we used tournament points. It hadn't crossed our mind that if you've got three objectives, you can get, say, three, one might be worth two points, four points. Yet if it's how much can I get across the line in the opponent's half and your army is huge, you can get a huge number. And there were some people at the end that kind of turned around and went, um, why am I so low down the table or why am I so high up the table? And then you just kind of looked at it and went, oh, oh yeah, I can see that now.
1: That was hampered as well because obviously you were running a one-day tournament. So all the things we talked about earlier about trying to get separation and only having a, few, exactly. a fewer number of games meant that has a huge impact.
5: Exactly. There's an awful lot of people that won two, games, lost two, uh, won two games and lost two games. There's an awful lot of people that had lost two games and won one game. So you're trying to break those very large groups and the question of how you break that i mean storing scoring systems is a massive um subject in its own right but how you break those is tricky and at the moment you make that to do with a scenario you've got to be blooming careful with your choice of scenario or if you translate the results of that through some sort of formula which is what mark's been working on And you know from looking at what he's got almost finished it's, it's looking quite good and i should think that well Shroud will use it, will use it. I don't know if, if Matt will, but you know, hopefully, he will. Clive might even start, I don't know. So, hopefully, it'll be a good southeast thing. And if anybody else wants to use it, that's brilliant. But obviously, third edition, this could all be completely moot. But you know, we'll soon find out.
3: My question to you guys is do you guys make a conscious effort to get a good mix of you know, loot token based, unit strength based, movement based? The, the various types of uh, scenarios, do you try to, when you're doing a two-day event or I guess even a one-day, do you try to get a mix? Yeah,
2: yeah. We, we, we always do that. We we decide our um, scenarios ahead of time um, because they go on our, our scoring sheet. Um, and we always make sure to have, if possible, a, a version of loo, a version of pillage, a version of invade or dominate. We try and get the, the biggest range we can really in there um, because some armies just do better at other things and some people prefer playing certain things so if you played all the different versions of pillage one day you'll go mad if you it's not what you like the only scenario we we never ever use is kill the four of us hate it it's just not fun to do um i know people have different views on this and don't like it um i've seen kill played at master's level and once you've seen that tell me it's fun because the correct way to play kill in inverted commas uh, is to turtle in the corner and just If you've got any shooting and they don't, it's to turn on a little ball, shoot a few units, and then not move all game. And both players hate it, and it's not fun, and it's not right, and we don't like doing it. But if you're playing to win and you want to win, that is the correct way to play. So we don't use kill at all. We think Kings of War is a scenario-based game, and kill just chucked all of that out the window. Uh, and kill also doesn't work with the Northern Kings scoring system, um, because we already give you points for killing things, so you're just getting points twice so it just doesn't work for us but apart from that we actually think all of the scenarios are really quite balanced at the minute and we use we use all of them um but we we do try and get a good mix between uh, as you say movement based ones unit strength based ones token based ones and loop counter um scenarios
6: yeah we we do the same um we don't announce what our scenarios are in advance so we don't put them in the packs so no one can build their armies around the scenarios they're expecting to play. So there's that uncertainty. Um, but yeah, we try and get that balance. And as you just said, that we we avoid kill. <laughs> we don't like kill at all. Um, it's it's not a fun scenario. And it's uh, the way we do our scoring system. Yeah, it. it isn't great so that's the one that we will always actively avoid but we uh, we try and mix it up each each tournament so we're not playing the same ones every time
4: what about special scenarios so you know there's like a i've seen a few special scenarios uh, particularly uh um what's the one they coming up uh, battle masters has got special scenarios that have been written and there's been some crazy ones in the u.s tournaments with tornadoes and twisters landing and stuff like that do you think it's worth writing your own scenario? What's what's the risks in writing
2: your own scenarios? Don't no, don't do it. Just <laughs> just don't <laughs> just don't do it. It's well balance reasons
4: or
2: writing scenarios is hard. Uh, I I've, mean, I've been, I've, I've been lucky enough to be on some of the Clash Kings play testings in the past, and what you tend to find that the when you do the playtests, that the the armies are pretty much spot on, and what takes the most playtesting, testing because it's the hardest thing. To envisage until you've actually played it, is scenarios. Um, because what looks good on paper, something that no one will ever have thought of, and really comes out of the blue. That even these the rules committee that are excellent at this, and you know the game designers, it's scenarios and something that like you go, oh, what do you think of that? And it it, it can be absolutely game breaking. Um, and to find that out halfway through a tournament is just the wrong time to find it out. So unless you've got time to really sit and play test all these scenarios you're writing. And you've got a team of people you can give it to and say, hi, guys, please, can you try and tear this apart from me? Don't do it because the, the guys that are professionals at this need all that to get it right. So I certainly couldn't write a good scenario without all of that behind me. And and I've, I've been to so many events where I've just thought, that's really spotlight for me is that. Because we thought it worked one way, it worked another, and all, I've lost the game on a technicality. And it's just, a oh, OK. So just, just don't do it. <laughs> it's my opinion. I know, I know people like them, but I, I don't personally.
5: I think there's also a danger that the tournament, the, the scenarios can end up being wacky because people are trying to be fun and cool. And that's brilliant for something like Vanguard. You know, you can play a Vanguard game when someone's thrown a, a random giant in that goes and stomp things. And that's brilliant. You're playing it, it's just an evening at home with your friends in your spare room, fair play. But a random, really swingy thing thrown in for a laugh to a tournament. It can upset people. It's it's not a safe thing to do. The tournament, the 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 scenarios in the pack are safe. They're well thought out. Why why try and and uh, complicate things?
1: Yeah, having played that giant scenario in Vanguard the other week, it merrily taking out my opponents, pretty much seventy five percent of their army in one turn. It, it's just too swingy for anything competitive so if, if you yeah something like that i've got no aspirations of creating scenarios for any event i run or any
2: not like
5: there's a lacking not like they're lacking in scenarios anyway is it you know there's plenty of them you could you can do three tournaments in a row with different scenarios never kind of interfering with it each clash of kings put, put new ones in if it was only like two scenarios and you had to up for variety i'd get it but Passing stand at the moment, just know.
4: Fair enough. That's that's a, a reasonably conclusive uh, viewpoint. So let's we've talked a little bit about our scoring systems, and there's been a lot of talk about, and there's been some really detailed posts that, frankly, lost me uh, on on yes. about scoring systems. So let's talk about the main scoring systems that are currently in use, and the benefits and uh, disbenefits. And Elliot has to go last because he's wildly biased. So you know we've got. Um, We've got your basic win-loss draw, haven't we? Which is, you know, a typical kind of football-style scenario. You've got the blackjack system, which I think was an Australian system came up with, where you get a difference between 21s. You've got, it's not that good, is it, the Northern King system. And you've got twenty zero. You know, talk to me about the little, uh, the differences between them, why you might choose one over the other, the benefits, the disbenefits, so on and so forth.
5: I think they are, it's a really, it's an issue that people get very, very passionate about, isn't it? And <laughs> I don't think any system... And no system ends up being absolutely perfect because short of doing something like a football league where every single person plays every single person once and you can just count wins, everything's going to have its its downsides. And for every system you can think of, somebody would tell you what's wrong with it. But then whatever else just will have the same downsides. And we've spent hours and hours discussing the systems we're going to use and how you could complicate it, and how you could simplify it, some um, things you could throw in to make it fairer in versus common, and somebody will always find an issue with it. Um, I think the thing that is important is it needs to be somebody in a tournament needs to be able to have half an idea of how well they're doing. Um, I've been to tournaments where you've been you, you're standing at the end, it's like an award ceremony, and you're sitting there thinking, I could be anywhere from second to mid table depending on how other things that I can't keep track of in my poor little brain uh, have had an effect. And I personally don't like that. And a lot of spoken to like to have an idea of where they feel that they are at any one point and that how what they do in the game is going to have an effect. So if it's too mystical and uh, the formulas are too complicated, it it can really upset
4: people, I think. Yeah, I get that, and I think I, I, I'm, I'm joking about Northern. Uh, hands up, the Northern King system is my favourite system, and we'll talk about. I'll, I'll let Elliot talk about Ooh. it in a minute. The tell you the reason I like it is because I'm a mid-table player, right? I, I'm not top of the, the. T- I think if you're a, a master's level player, I think the scoring system you're playing on becomes incredibly important for the reasons you've said in that, you know, the tiniest swing or the uh, an attrition difference can make a difference, right? I'm a mid table player, so I, I will probably win and lose the same amount of games. So for me, what Northern Kings gives me is the opportunity to, to carry on playing when I know I'm losing, right? Because my yeah. kill points count. And that, and so I can think and look at this scenario and say, well, I've got not enough unit strength compared to Matt's ludicrous ogre army um, to win this scenario, but I can carry on killing some of his more, more expensive units, and actually, my score might not not look so bad. Was that the kind of the the impetus behind creating a system like that? Yeah,
2: I'm really glad you said that because that's exa- that was exactly the point behind it. Um, we, we wrote the system basically. We sat down and said, what don't we like about the other systems? Um, and there was a very interesting one I had at Bristol the week uh, last few weekends ago against um, Dan King, actually. Um, and I lost two key units at the very start of the game and said, right, I can't win the scenario now. And because we were using the 20 nil system, my only tactic was to hide for the rest of the game. And that's what I had to do. I had to literally spend the rest of the game trying to conserve points and hiding. Um, and it was boring. It was boring for me and it was boring for Dan. Um and in the end, I got fed up and just charged and, and ran in and did exactly what I shouldn't do. Um, but the, the the whole point of the Northern Kings system, I'll just explain it very briefly, is that uh, it's a, a win loss draw. So if you if you win the scenario, if you win the game, you get fifteen points, and then uh, and if you lose the scenario, you get five points. Um, and then each player, regardless of whether you won or lost, can get up to five points for how many. Um, scenarios points they're currently holding so for example if it was and it was five tokens and you held three and your opponent held two the winner would get three points and the loser would get two points or if it was invaded um it would be scoring units not unit strength which kind of gets around the issue of how many ogre hordes can you get over the board um and for each scenario i've written a guide of how you score those up to five points um, and then you can get up to five points for how much you've killed. So it's not kill difference. It's how much you've personally killed. So the point is in that situation where where you know you can't win. Um, and there, there are always times where it gets turned four and you think, right, I cannot win the game now. But you can say to yourself, right, but I want some tournament points. So it's pillage, for example. I can't get those tokens, but I can hold these two. So I, I know I'm going to stay on these two and I'm going to get those points. And... I might as well go for that long bomb suicide charge in the corner because I might kill something and it doesn't matter if I die myself. And we just found that it leads to such fun games because your opponent is never down and out. There's never a time where there's nothing they can do. And even if they don't think they can win the scenario, it becomes almost a little mini game for them of, okay, I can't win, but I can hold this corner damn it, and this will be my corner and you can't have it. And I'm going to push you off here. and I'm going to go for a charge. And and you never feel like you're robbing your opponent of points either because it doesn't matter to them if their stuff dies. So I, I know some people feel a bit a bit bad if they know they've lost or that so they just say oh you just 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 take it, just kill it. And there's never any of that. There's a right, okay, well I might as well I'm going to decide if I can't win the game I'm going to kill all of your dragons for the sake of it because that's what I want to do. Um, we have just found it's it makes for much funner games because it's obviously the game is adversarial. But you're always scoring for yourself. You're not scoring to take points away from your opponent at any time in this sort of system. Um, it's a positive-only scoring system. So you, you've always, always got something to play for. That There's never a time where it gets to turn three and there's no point carrying on. Um, because, as you say, those mid-tables mid, mid tables as well, those few points will always matter. So if you've got two wins and a loss, well, it's two wins, but actually in a lot of the scenarios, I managed to just hold on. I got my... Three or four tournament points, even though I lost. Um, I, I I love our scoring system. I will bang on about it forever if you'll let me. I'll, I'll stop now.
4: You've just had <laughs> the world's best sales pitch on Northern King scoring. Do you? <laughs> has it changed your mind? Do you? Were you thinking what scoring system you might go for for your tournament? Uh,
1: so I played a slightly different version of the uh, Northern King system. I think it was that at uh, the Vanguard GT in the US uh, a few months ago. It felt good that if you were doing really. Well, in something, your kind of success in that was capped. You couldn't get a run away. Like you said, you know, it kind of calibrates it a bit. Um, And they also had uh, some kind of hidden objectives that you could um, declare at the start of the game and try and achieve for a bonus couple of objective points as well. I think I'd need to read into it a bit more and actually play it because I've not been on the receiving end of it yet. So, I'd want to play, see how that feels. Um, I've only really played tournaments um, at Matt Paul's events so far. But yeah, I'm definitely interested in something that feels like it rewards you even though you're not doing great, because at the end of the day, you, you want to go to the event and not just be stomped on every game. You want to have a, a bit of skin in the game every time. And even if you've had some terrible dice rolls, if you've still got a chance to get some Uh, VPs towards the end of each of the games then it's got to be a good thing
2: there's so many games where it's been a really close really bloody game and you've you've fought it to the end and and you've you've both had a fantastic time and maybe your opponent won it by that one token by one inch at the very last second and then you work your score out and it's 18-2 and that just it just feels so unfair (laughs) that you fought such a bloody fight in such a really good game and you only get two points and they get 18 from it and I think both people feel a bit almost cheated from that at the end. I've, I've had a few times where I've gone, I'm sorry, actually, because you deserved a lot more than two points out of that game because it was so close and it came down to that last turn seven roll. And in our system, you would have got your, all your tournament points for that when You would have got all your kill points for that. And it would it would probably work out something more like a, a 21 and a 17 or something. It would be a lot closer in score. So the winning player doesn't lose anything, but the losing player gains so much more from it. And it just... It just feels nicer. And, and there's no way of ever scoring zero. If you lose, you still score five. <laughs> it makes no difference, but it feels nicer.
4: We've, we've gone quite lengthy on, on the construction of tournaments. So I just want to really quickly touch on the number of games and the timing of games. So, you know, we see a mixture of three and four games for, for one days. And we see a mixture of five and six over, over two-day tournaments. And that's going to be a 3-3 three, three or a 4-2. Now I'm going to assume that everyone in this conversation is in favour of clocks. Because if you're not in favour of clocks, yes. you're wrong. So you know what's what's the right amount of time to give to a game? What's the right amount of games? You know, do you think four games in a day can be unfriendly to less experienced players? How do you, how you know, what's the thought process that goes into constructing that?
2: We, we do for our one day as we do four games now, um, and that's purely a we. You know, we're, we're selling a ticket. We want to get as many games in as we possibly can. Um, but it is tiring. And by the fourth game, you're done for. And you're ready to go home. Um, but we do try and get our awards stuff done very quickly and, and off. Um, and we give 50 minutes per game for 2,000 points. Uh, but for our weekenders, we do three and two. Mainly because on a weekender, I tend to be drinking. So there is no way that I can do four games and drink at the same time. It just won't happen.
5: We do an hour. Don't we do four? An hour for a 2,000-point game?
6: Uh, yeah, an hour per side.
5: Yeah, I, I personally don't enjoy less than that, and it's a purely personal thing. I'm not the quickest player. We're, we're, you know, we're a couple of people that would play a 2,000 point game of Warhammer 4,000 back in the day, and it would take us the majority of the day to play it. We are slow. We know we are. Um, I don't like the feeling of the pressure of the clock. That the clock is an absolute necessity if the tournament's going to run anything like efficiently and run to time. Um, so I think an hour an hour a game with a decent amount of time for a 2,000 point game, I know it can be done quicker. I personally find it hard. And as I said before, I think you end up running the tournament subconsciously that, that you like to do. Um, so. We made a conscious decision, and don't forget a lot of other doubles as well, that we're never going to be ranked. It was always supposed to just be purely for the hell of it. Um, We made a conscious decision. We do not want people to be stressed and tired. So if it's less games, if it's only three games in the doubles, and they get a little bit longer and a little bit more of a break in between, then that's fine. And people seem to have really responded to that. Having been to some thousand-point tournaments, and realised that I can knock through a thousand point game, even me, the slow player that I am, I can go through that in 40 minutes. So when someone gives me 50 minutes, I have time left on my clock, which is an unknown you know, thing. That means you can get full games in, and you can get them quite quick. And that's, One reason
6: why I like it. Yeah, when we ran our first tournament, we made clocks optional because that was something that uh, Luke and Lee had in their Beers of War tournament. And we took a lot of the structure of ours from from what we'd experienced up up at their tournaments. Um, We made them compulsory from the second tournament onwards uh, because we realised that they are actually, although, yes, they do add a bit of pressure to some players, they are absolutely essential for keeping things running on time. Uh, so, uh, yes, if, if anyone's listening and who is thinking of running a tournament, clocks are a must.
5: The only fair way of doing it, otherwise one person can overrun and one person doesn't. The tournament gets to the end. As a tournament organiser, you then feel a bit uncomfortable. You have to go and speed people up and say, "Well, oh, come on, come on. And then they get upset because they're trying to finish their game. And, and it's just, just no, just, just use the clocks.
4: So I want to talk on uh, touch on Rob's favourite topic, which is terrain. He is the king of terrain. I think terrain can, can really turn a tournament special. I saw a a photo that uh, Nick Williams reposted where he went to a London tournament where the terrain was literally polystyrene blocks. What what's some tricks to getting up to a decent amount of terrain? Because we don't have you know the big basements in the US to fill with boxes of terrain. Um, how do you get a decent amount of terrain to run a tournament? You know, do you just use door terrain? Do you think you're having you know that's pretty heavily used and can pretty 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 knackered? You know, do you think theme tables are a good idea? What, what how you know how do you get up to that level?
1: I'm working on a, a shed full of lost dreams. Uh, over the years, that I've just generally collected stuff with aspirations that maybe I'll use it one day. And from my youth, so I seem to have a pretty big inventory at the moment. Um, all I was lacking was a few, a few mats, um, and I've got a reasonably uh, waterproof shed that I can just kind of store it all in the minimum. I love
5: scenery. It's the reason why I play this game. In all honesty, for making the scenery when so we started. For the first tournament, we borrowed from Hammer Gaming Club. We just borrowed some of their stuff and sort of repaired a few of the bits with it, you know, something that was a little bit worn. So I just took it home and painted some bits over. Um, By our second tournament, I was making extra scenery, starting with the stuff that I already had. By about the second tournament, I'd realised that there's, there's, there's two very important there's two aspects of the scenery you want it to look really really good and you want it to be really, really easy to play on and the two things aren't necessarily the same um so some of the lovely detail stuff that i've done for skirmish games in my own house you put it on a king reward table on a, on a tournament and you're looking at people with their units sliding off of your hills and balance on a difficult terrain and, and, and sort of the look of fear on their faces as their model slides across the table, you start to think quite quickly, Oh, hang on a minute, I need to make the scenery and I need to have something in, in mind. So now when I make the scenery, I do, you know, I watch a load of Luke's, APS videos and, and try to make it as sort of detailed as I can because first and foremost I want it to look nice. People seem to have liked it and have quite nice comments from people. But I will sit there with a model going, or a unit base going, can I balance this on here? Is that going to slide off? Can this be removed? You know, all trees must be removable. Um, I've got a difficult terrain where the rocks are removable, or difficult terrain where I've made sure there's four or five things at the same height and they're the highest so that a unit will sit on top of it. All of my obstacles are an inch apart so that they are the gas of a bounce back. In an ideal world, you have something where you can remove the top piece and you leave the base underneath that can all be removable. Hills are the tricky one because hills always seem to have sides that things slide off of. But yeah, looks and playability are both important and, and tricky to reconcile with each other.
4: Rob, you're the king of terrain. What's your what's your top three tips for tournament organizers
3: when it comes to terrain? Well, I mean, you guys touched on a lot of them, which is the fact that it's usually mutually exclusive between something that looks good and something that's playable. My first tip is always make it more playable. I mean, it's great that it looks great, you know, that it looks really cool and evocative. But if the players are struggling to play the game, it'll actually slow the game down. And, you know, from a TO perspective, not a good thing. You want things to stay on stay on track. The second thing is always be cognizant of how you're going to store it before you build it. Uh, It's a lot harder to do that to figure it out after it's already built. For example, if you have a certain size tub that you use or storage container, you build to that container with that known limitation in place. And then the third thing is watch a lot of YouTube videos and make them as robust as possible. You know, use walnut shells, use, you know, use the things that are going to stand up because there's nothing worse than building a really pretty table and then watching it get destroyed in one event. (laughs) So take the time to really, you know, use the MDF bases on all your pieces and stuff like that. So make it playable, make it storable, and make it high quality so that it lasts. Those are my, my three things.
4: Awesome. And before we uh, finish up on this section, um, how do you guys see the US scene in terms of uh, tournaments? What what differences do you see? And what's one thing each that you would like to steal from the US scene for, for your UK tournaments?
2: Um, for, for me, and it's it's controversial, it's soft goals. No, not maybe to the extent that they have them in the U.S., but I think we we are missing a trick over here. Um, the snow guys did it brilliantly, where I think that there's a huge gap between best painted and best army and everybody else. And it it does feel at the minute that, like, I, don't, I want to have my army looking good for me because I want it to look good, but I'm one of these kind of players where if you tell me I can put three colours on it and it's done, I quite often will put three colours on it and it's done. Whereas at Four Foot Snake, there was a, a painting rubric and I could follow that and I knew exactly what would get me certain levels. And it, it really pushed me. And I, I painted up my um, Basileans just for that tournament. And I'm really proud of them now. And they're my best-looking army by a long way. Um, and I need the stick to make me do that. Um, and so I think soft scores in that sense, I think, would be a great thing. of The, the Kings of War community, our is look absolutely beautiful. Um, but I think there's not enough recognition of those very good players, that are very good painters, that aren't Dan Reed or Nick Williams or um, Chris that aren't winning those best arms because and they deserve to win them because they look absolutely fantastic. But there's a lot of players with excellent arms that aren't getting any recognition. Will it be great if they could get a load of painting scores from it? And I see the guys that have been over to America from the UK, and their arms look fantastic because they've they've had to sort of up their game and I, I like us to up our game really yeah
5: soft, soft scores is my thing the, you say about soft scores do you mean putting the painting scores in with the um the actual gaming scores or as a separate yeah Just to say you no know, in, in our tournament we have first second third and fourth gaming we also have first second third and I think possibly fourth best armies and we have a single model painting score, um, painting thing. They are all completely separate. And as somebody, you know, I'm bad at playing the game. I enjoy painting. The moment you throw the gaming in with it, no matter how well I paint my army, my gaming pulls my score down. Um, yeah. And I know a lot of people who don't enjoy painting because their painting then pulls their gaming down. We like to have them separate, but we are very, very clear that whatever you win for general top gaming the quality of the prize for top painting is exactly the same and then it then goes down so in our tournaments you've got about five sometimes up to eight different painting awards that you could possibly win and we do single models so that people that feel that they can't paint an entire army can enter the single model side of it people with their army can do the army side of it and we try to put the emphasis just as much on the painting as the gaming but not mix the two because then people who feel they're good at one not the other feel they end up with a kind of muddied score in the middle where they haven't actually done very well either sorry i'm quite passionate about the uh, painting scores in, in tournaments
4: but i think the problem there is that there's no incentive you can still go along so if you're a, a kick-ass badass general you can go on and with you know unpainted models or bases it doesn't matter because there's no rubric and i I you know hands up I'm 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 not a good player and I like hobby I'm not as it happens I'm not a great painter either but I like making the effort and actually that kind of that US system where you have a best overall a best battle and a best painted so yeah fine if you just want to kick ass you can come in and you can go for best battle but best overall combines all of them And, you know, in some ways that's regarded as as,
3: when we do best overall, it may not be weighted the same. It's important to know that every tournament is different here in the U.S. Those that have best overalls, one might be what we would dub a hobby tournament where it's a third year scores from painted. But some are, you know, maybe worth like a half a game or a game. So it's not always gaming and painting are equal when in terms of the contribution to overall.
4: Matt, you went to a U.S. tournament, didn't you?
3: Uh, Yeah, I managed to get over to Vanguard
1: uh, run by Mike, and that was uh, pretty surreal for me because it's the first event that I've been to which had combined kind of hobby and battle scores. And yeah, I I did all right in battle, but I kind of pushed up a few places probably because of the hobby and paint side of it, um, which just felt a bit odd. I think I'm used to it being a completely separate painting event and battle event. Yeah, I think subjective nature of hobby sometimes is an issue, but they did do it completely objectively there with a third party impartial judge who was judging to a rubric. So maybe that's got potential.
4: I think some of it is that we have a much smaller tournament scene. You know, a lot of newer tournaments, they struggle to get players in. And so I went to a, a brand new tournament, it was a countercharge episode. Up here, which was which was the the Celestial Forge tournament. And a uh, loads of new players came to that Say loads, like four. Right? So it was a very small attended tournament. So it was only 12 players, and there was four new players there. One of them had a beautiful army. One of them had an unpainted army. You know, But he wouldn't have come, or he would have bought something completely different if there was a painting rubric. And I think people are just a little bit nervous, because there is a large and very vocal portion of the Kings of War community in the UK that says, if you put hobby in it, I'm not going, because I can't.
2: Yeah, but I, I, I'm not sure if I believe them. My grumble is, I think the, the people that tend to shout it don't come to tournaments anywhere. I mean, for me, I would only ever include soft girls in weekend events. Uh, I think for you for your one day, is there more your, your practice ones where you can bring your army that's not quite finished or you can bring whatever you like? I think for me, I would only ever do it for the weekend ones, which is sort of your your showcase events where you come. And and, and like I said, it's not that the quality of painting in the UK isn't good, but you look at the photos of the ones in America and it, it's, it's that next level again. And I know for a fact, if I've not got any incentive to improve my army because it's technically painted i i won't do it and i i am that lazy painter that just says oh i painted that five years ago it looks naff but it's done so i'll never go back and redo it whereas if there was an incentive to do it i might do actually and everybody enjoys better because then you're looking at a a prettier army across the table.
3: Very similar to the discussion you guys had about, you know, whether an event is a rankings qualifier. You know, we've already said that if it's a rankings qualifier, you're going to get more people. What I found when I have some, it doesn't have to be huge, but some contribution to overall as as a painting score, you get those players that are not there to win the painting awards, they will improve their game and it doesn't have to be much. It could be as simple as is it a painted army? and you get X amount of points, and everybody gets the same. That's fine, too.
4: Okay, so we've covered that pretty thoroughly. So let's uh, slide into a commercial break. And on the other side, let's look at the how of tournaments.
0: I'm Andy2D6, the orange legend, and you're listening to Counter Charge. Get ready to charge those counters.
4: And we're back. All right, so now on to the how of tournaments, some of the commercial stuff. So let's talk venues. Um, I think they can be really important. You know, if you've ever been to Element Games, you know it's it's a great venue, but not in the most salubrious location. <laughs> How do you find a decent venue for a decent price? And you know, what's the most important thing about a venue? Is it just the facilities? Is location parking?
2: How dare you prefer Stockport?
4: Oh dear, <laughs> I love Stockport with you know with a fierce passion. But uh, we, a lot of the US events seem to be in quite nice hotels, and I think possibly it's the fact that UK hotels are just so incredibly expensive and filled with weddings. So you know. Wh- what are the main factors that you guys look for? And I know that the, you, Kings of Hearts guys, you, you you got quite lucky, right? So you, you use yeah. personal influence.
5: I work there. Paul's the go- uh, deputy chair of governors there. You, uh, <laughs> you really know the place. We chose it. It wasn't actually the first place he we went to. The first place he we went to was a, a scout hut, a big scout hut. I didn't want to do it at school. I didn't want to um, mix work and and hobby sort of thing. And then they told me how much it cost. Um, mm-hmm. And it was terrifying for a scout hut. And then I looked at it and I went, well, I'm going to have to charge people about £10 entry because, like I said, when we first started we didn't know how many players we'd get. And you're looking at the well, we might get 10 people. Well, that means if I'm making a £10 ticket price, it's entirely going to go and I'm still not going to cover the higher of the hall because it was a couple of hundred quid. And you thought, oh, we can't do this. And then we looked at the school and then we realised that the school was very generous and allowed us to use it for just basically enough money so that it was insured. Um, And the more I looked at the school, the more I went, well, it's five minutes drive from the M1, so the transport links are good. It's got a large on-site car park, so you're never going to have trouble parking. And that always stresses me out going to a tournament. I'm not going to know where to park. Um, The hall's a decent size. It's got a kitchenette and things like that. There are downsides we can't have smoking and drinking and, and things which are, are sort of a more public a venue can have. Um, and the time we tried to use the dining room tables, people told us that they're backfaked by the end of it because tables aimed at seven year olds don't match um full grown war gamers, so we've ended up sort of moving tables around at school. Um, the thing we lacked was an on site shop. We got around that by asking the pit all gaming shops. In Boreham Wood, and they just, every one of our tournaments, they decamp and they just fill the corner of our of our school hall with their shop. Um, so it covers nice spaces. It's got a nice field outside, we're near local shops. It does well, but it's not a gaming venue. It's no Dark Sphere, it's no um, Element Games or anything like that. And, you know, they have many of
4: their own advantages. Are you wedded to Element Games? I, I think, you know,
2: um, do you ever see a we, we move around actually. So we, we use, um, I think, three different venues we've used in the past. Um, we're in Sheffield, uh, Leeds, or, or Stockport. So we, we move around the north of where we, we run um, ours. We, we use gaming venues um, mainly because we don't have our own selection of terrain or maps. Um, but also because I think you were just saying it there about the, the sort of fixed cost of a hall hire. Um, the gaming venues you pay per player. So it's a variable cost. So there's no big upfront cost that you've got to sell so many tickets to make your money back. Um, so even though actually per head it might work out more expensive, it's much safer for us that we're not going to have to put our own hands in our pockets if we don't sell enough tickets. Um, so Element Games, for example, charges us a, a per head table hire fee. Um, and that just goes up the more players we've got there. So if we only get 12 players, we only pay for 12 players. If we get 30 players, we pay for 30. Um, so it, it, it's much easier for us doing it that way and we're very lucky that we've got the three venues so nearby to us um, and we've also got quite good relationships with the staff of those venues we know them quite well um, it just makes organising so much easier for us really
5: We used Dark CFS Franticon and that was, that was good that was a big full-size gaming venue and it running a tournament there was, you know ported most of it and, and well, ported most of our aspect of it Ben and his team at Frantic Gamers did um, most of the work, but it was a very different type of event when the tables are there and the place is custom designed, um, and it had its own all its own benefits. It had the downside of being in central London, and some people didn't were a bit nervous about travelling in central London and this, the the, um, the travel cost.
6: Fantastic being a dark sphere, it was, it was a custom made gaming event venue,
5: um,
6: so it it changed the feel of the atmosphere of the tournament in a way because it wasn't a smaller affair because there were two different tournaments going on side by side there were members of the public there as well you know it was an active shop and they had other things going on but uh, so it didn't make for quite a quite a noisy environment so trying to get the players attention on. I mean, for our, we were quite lucky that we had john folks there so whenever we needed players' attention, he would just <laughs> shout out and everyone heard him i don't know where the volume comes from but <laughs> he got everyone we <laughs> to needed it it was brilliant
4: Matt, how did you find it to, looking for a venue for your for your event uh,
1: so i ran a bit of a poll a little quick uh, straw poll on the southern kings of wolf uh, group and said what's the most important thing to you um, and they said things like parking uh, were probably the most important thing rather than kind of being near a train station. So I've managed to find somewhere with loads of parking, a kitchen on site that I can use, um, and plenty of space, really.
4: So, one of the differences between Dark Sphere and Element is that Element has a beer tap.
2: I've got to say, it has beer and it has lots of beer. <laughs>
4: yeah. yeah. I think that, and that does really change the way that the game. The, the, the event feels isn't it do you think catering is kind of an important part of it do you think having a obviously you can't have beer in a school um do you think you know Definitely if you, not. It, it can push the price up if you add food but actually if you're feeding people does that make a difference do you think it's worth doing
2: we we've always done food and um, food was a, a a big part of our events and so we we said from the very start we didn't mind if our tickets were a bit more expensive uh, as long as you got good quality hot food um we never wanted to put on a sandwich platter we we always go find a gourmet food truck or a, a something. I mean, we, uh, the, the, the pies you get at Element Games, which um, the Four Foot Snakes guys use, the, the gourmet pies, we, we made a big point of we really want to feed you good quality food. Again, if this is your only event you're going to come to for three months, why not pay £3 more and get a really good quality lunch as well with it? And I just think it adds to the experience. I've, I've been to so many especially the 40K days of disappointing Subway sandwiches and dry platters or something. And you think, well, I could have paid two or three pounds more for something really nice. So why not? It's not a lot of money. We're talking about difference-wise. And we like food ourselves, so we like sourcing it.
5: That's the important thing there. If the food quality, it's worth including it in the price. When we looked at it, it was, like either this food could be brilliant or we're making people pay for something which they may not even like. And I've been to tournaments where I've not eaten the food that was included there and thought, oh, I paid for it in my ticket price. That was a waste. But either you don't include it and you say to people, you know, they're nearby. We, we've always done a takeaway order that we've done on bulk. Um, but people have paid for it directly themselves because they didn't want it. They didn't want it because we knew we couldn't do really good quality food. If you can do really good quality food and you can guarantee that there'd be something for everybody, then it adds time to the tournament if you're in a position to do that.
4: And I think big food, you know, like with a two-day event, if you're going to have a two-day event, people are going to drink more. If you go into a one-day, you might need to drive and so you're not going to drink. So having having some kind of a, a bar is perhaps more of a law for a two-day event. So it's probably something as well, right?
2: Yeah, I think for our one-day, we often use venues without bars and it's not a problem very few of anybody drinks on the one day tournaments um for the two days you don't need a bar i, w- I would like a bar um, <laughs> even for STO. i think it helps your to to have a few pints um helps pass the time um but i think again you don't need need it because you've always got the evening and you're all going out as a big group anyway so it's it's not the end of the world if there's someone you can't drink um yeah, we've always had them past where either it's bring your own booze or yeah, there's a there's a bar and I've, I've frequented Eleventh Bar quite a few times. Yeah, <laughs> it's one tap.
4: So, in terms of money, then what's the best way to get money from people? If if I was a new tournament organizer, everyone seems to use PayPal. know, are there any risks behind that? And how do you manage signups? At what point do you say you know you need to pay now or you can't come?
2: Yeah, um, we, we we use PayPal. PayPal's brilliant for us because um because there's four of us. Uh, it, it doesn't have to be linked to any one person. So we have a Northern Kings email address, which is the pay- Northern Kings PayPal account. All four of us can get into it. It's not one person's risk or one person's money. Um, and everybody seems to have PayPal these days. And so it just, just works for us. Um, and we, we don't put you on the list until you've you've bought your ticket and you've, you've paid. Um, but we don't ever tend to have... Again, the fantastic things about using gaming centers is they've usually got more capacity than we can fill. So we don't ever tend to fill up. We just tend to keep taking ticket sales until you know the day before. Yeah, I mean we we do have a PayPal. Uh, similarly, because Matt and I both run the
6: events between us, we don't use we have never used our own personal bank account or personal PayPal. We set up a bank account for our events PayPal account um, so that it's completely separate from our personal finances. We actually set up virtual shop. Um, using something called big cartel. So you can put five products up there and it doesn't cost you anything for the service. So that was great for us. They manage the transactions um, and everyone gets effectively a receipt for their ticket. So, um, and we've got an app on our phones so we can keep track of all the ticket sales as they come through. Um, I'll be sitting at work and I'll have something ping up on my, my watch to tell me that we've had a ticket sale and people are wondering why I'm cheering at my desk. Um, but it's, it's quite a useful way of keeping track. And then we've got a digital record of actually who's bought a ticket. And unless someone actually buys it, they haven't got a place at the tournament because we we can't fill the space for a potential a player with someone who's kind of suggested they might want to turn up but hasn't actually committed to it yet. So, um, yeah, there is a certain point you do have to cut off and say ticket sales are closed so that you can actually... Um, uh, you know make your plans but generally we don't stop the ticket sales until about a week before uh, really until the point where we ask for the list to be
5: submitted. We can never fill the school even if we've we, well, we managed to fill the school even if we've tried so it's uh, one of the one of the downsides would be if somebody buys a ticket oh I haven't actually got space but that's just not going to happen for us not in the short term.
4: Okay, so how about advertising? Now, it's fair to say that Elliot is the king of advertising. I've never been so aware there was a tournament going on.
2: How much is uh, how much is
4: too much? And, uh, you know, what's the <laughs> roots for advertising? <laughs> uh,
2: it's too much when it stops working. It's not stopped working yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite- um, I don't know. I, I may have gone a little bit too far for our last event. But as I say, we had we had five weeks to fill a, a singles a, a weekend tournament. So it was originally going to be a team tournament, and we just didn't get the sales for that. Um, and five weeks out, we decided, OK, let's just try and make it a, a tournament. And obviously, five weeks to fill a weekend tournament is very hard. So you probably heard from me every single day for five weeks. Screaming and shouting and pushing and direct messaging and I I got you all there. We got twenty four <laughs> players. Eventually, um, I don't know. I, the reason I advertise so much is because it winds me up how little everybody else does seem to advertise. Um, and and tournaments. I mean, not so much the guys on here actually, because I'm, I'm I'm very aware of when your events are. But I'll see on Facebook that there was an event down the road, and I now I'm very active on all the Kings of War Facebooks and the forum when it was there and the new forum and and so for it to pass me by takes some doing um, you've almost got to be trying not to advertise your event to miss me because I'm a bit of a geek on these things and I'm constantly on it and I still don't know about some of the events going on so how new players can find them is beyond me um, so we we use Facebook mainly it's fantastic now that we've got the calendar for the on the rankings page um, I always try and get Mantic to share our events so you're getting those new players that aren't and the fanatics and you're doing that but yeah, i I probably go a bit far.
5: <laughs> but you, at least you're should all aware in our events, huh? We've been similar with Apertise. I don't know if we do as much, but we've tried to be as much on the fanatics groups and things. The question we've always had is, when we started this, we wanted more romantic players in South East. Um, Kings of War fanatics is, by definition, people who play Kings of War. We were trying to push our tournaments at players who didn't already play Kings of War, possibly hadn't tried it much, but probably had some fantasy battle game miniatures somewhere knocking around, even if it was blue-tacking Age of Sigma miniatures to a, a movement trait. But how how are you get in touch with those people, I, I'm still not hundred percent sure. Um you can't kind of spam advert the your Kings of War tournament on Facebook sub pages aimed at other games, it doesn't go down particularly well. Um, you can kind of get in touch with other local clubs, um, and you tend to get the players there that already play Kings of War. But I'm um, quite how you get to people that don't play but might play, I still don't quite know the answer to. <laughs> I'd love to. If we know uh, it, please let us know.
2: We, we, we give out an award for best newcomer, and a few of my advertising posts were basically really pushing that, saying, have you got any club mates that you think might be interested? Bring them along and here's a prize that they might win. And actually, we've got, I think, three or four new players now coming to our events through doing that work. So, but you, to do that, you've already got to have at least one player in a club playing Kings of War who can then go out and recruit other ones.
5: Paul, oh, didn't Franticon, didn't they give, didn't there
4: some
5: products given away to people if they, bought, if they were new to tournaments?
6: Yeah, Mantic uh, were very good, and uh, because they knew what we were trying to do, uh, you know, talking to Rob Burnham and Chloe, they offered to give um, any team where one of them is, where at least one of them is new to Kings of War tournaments. Uh, both of them got a bag of uh, Vanguard plastics, so it was an incentive to uh, bring along uh, a newbie. Um, and as it happened, some of those who came along as their first tournament. Have actually continued to come to tournaments, so it had the right effect. Um, but as Matt said, yeah, trying to trying to get uh, you, you need that link to someone already. So someone who's completely new to Kings of War, it's uh, if they're not following the Facebook groups, how you how you get to them is a bit of a mystery.
2: I, I, do, I do think that Mantic could do more personally as a company. I think their their community engagement is is good and getting better. Um, but I, I know from the fact that going to the Mantic Zone doubles tournaments and their tournaments at Mantic HQ, there are plenty of Kings of War players that just aren't aware of the fanatics or the tournament scene, or don't want to be aware, which is fine. But they've got the mailing lists and they've got all the the outreach and the blog and the ways of contacting players. Um, and I'm screaming out to them, saying, please, 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 can you not just advertise mine because that wouldn't be fair? But can can you please share this calendar? of all the events going on. Look how wonderful it is. And they they might share it, but they might share it once and then never again. Um so I, I'm I, I keep pestering Magic about sharing it more often and, and it just it, it lends so much weight and authority to it when the actual company are saying, you know, here's some events, we don't endorse them, but I'm I'm sure they're brilliant sort of thing. See, they
5: did do a lot for Franticon, um, they did an awful lot. But then it was a magic event, I think um to a certain degree so whether that's different from from other people's events
4: i don't know so you know we've mentioned some prizes there and i think prizes can can make a big difference obviously um people are there for you know sweet sweet ranking points but um you know how do you go about getting that prize support apart from just pestering you know you you know how do you spend some of your entry fee on prizes and, and how do you give that prize support out? You know, do you just give it to the winners? Do you, you know, what, what, what kind of prize support works best?
2: Um, we've had quite limited prize support, really, in the past. Um, Element games are excellent. And they will always give us, the, what Element tend to do is they say, oh, you can have three pounds per player as a prize. And we've always said, okay, give every player three pounds. And we do we do it that way rather than as a prize. Um, I tend to find people don't often come for prizes. They come because they enjoy the game and they come and play it um we also have the issue that the northern kings tend to play in our events and we do occasionally win them so uh, we we pass the prizes down or we we raffle them off um because what we don't want to do is win our own prizes that just feels a bit crass um so yeah so we if we, if we ever do have prizes we raffle them off we don't actually seek them we we have trophies but things like gift boxes or models or stuff we we don't give out prizes
4: i think there is an incentive and i appreciate that people don't play for prizes so people do you know it's nice to come to an event and go away with something you know even if it's a small model pack or a blister or a voucher that's some kind of it's it's the idea that you can come along and actually you might go home with something i think there can be an incentive and i think it can be crass so you see people you know we've got four thousand you know pounds worth of prizes would be like wow that's it adds an element of competitiveness where people are playing for something real but I think it can add to a tournament, you know, the idea that you go home with something nice, or some models, or or some paints, or some brushes.
6: i was say after the first few tournaments, we did do a uh, a gift um, that everyone got. So out of their price, out of their ticket price, they got uh, something to take home with them. So there were some uh, counters and markers. The first tournament, we did a dice tray in one of them. Um, we did some uh, MDF um, models, little models, and I think those were very popular. The, The prices, Matthew did a questionnaire, a survey on Fanatics Group, and prizes was quite low down on the reason for attending a tournament. Actually getting to play the game was obviously very high, you'd expect. Um, Getting to meet people, uh, like-minded people, and the social side of it was quite high, but the prizes didn't seem to be. So we've we've obviously made sure that we had some prizes for each tournament, but uh, it's not... It's not been the main driver for everyone that's attended so far, whether that that doesn't mean that uh, not everyone wants to come, go away with, uh, you know, something tangible at the end of the day, rather than just the experiences of the day. Um, but, you know, we've, each yeah, their own.
5: We've never paid for prizes either. You know, our last one them, we did. We did it at the school and we did it purely to try and raise some money for the school because they'd given us cheap pool fees up until that point. And we said to everybody, there's pretty much going to be no prizes. We're just doing it for the sake of, of charity. And everybody came anyway. And we actually got more people than we'd ever had before. And everybody said, we're not bothered about prizes. Um, but we still had some because we ended up just emailing random companies, literally every company that we could think of that had something to do with wargaming, we emailed them. Um, and some companies don't get back to you. Some companies got back to you and said you know it's lovely i'm you know very pleased you're doing this but we can't afford to support you or we need to support our own game systems or something like that but a lot of people came back and said yeah have this have this um so we've had we've had cases from kr we've had game maps um we've had uh, models mantic are always incredibly generous with their prize support so we've never paid for anything but we've always had lots of lovely prizes but then when i surveyed people and said, how? what do you think the best way of handing these out is most people said as broadly as possible. So the smallest, you know, reasonably small prizes, break it down as much as you can and then just give it to as many people, which is one of the reasons that we've had, we have prizes for, um, sportsmanship, top four generals, top four paints, um, last place, all those sorts of things, because people seem to like it when it was spread out as much as possible. Um, you know, the wooden spoon one's always a nice one, because let's face it, some of the finch tournaments have not had the best day in the way of games. I'm sure they've probably still enjoyed it, but those are probably the people who need a nice toy to take home with them more. Um, people that win it are often happy that they've just won the tournament and they get a little trophy and, and that side of things. So the more it can be spread out, I think, the better.
4: Matt, have you thought about prizes for your tournament? Have you have you done any kind of uh, prize support digging yet? Have you got in there? Uh,
1: yeah, I've had a, a bit of a route around um, with some of the guys I know. Uh, I think that prizes are probably a little bit of an incentive. I don't think people go to events solely to win them, but I think um, it's a good way of manufacturers getting their goods out there to, to show people um, and a chance for people to maybe pick up some things they weren't quite expecting. Um, so yeah, I've managed to... Tap up a few contacts um, and I've got uh, old school minis, Hobgoblin Hobbies, Ye Alchemist and uh, Sandstorm looking at providing uh, some prize support. Um, maybe some slightly smaller boutique manufacturers there. Um, but hopefully people might find some interesting things to take home if they win them.
2: Our um, our wooden spoon prize is a, a set of dice that just say bad luck on them. and um, <laughs> They're quite nice though because then you, you're playing them later on. You, you, you always know you're playing somebody that got the wooden spoon at the event. And they um, people keep telling me they roll better because they're um, they're dice. Yeah, so how about um,
4: trophies? I think you know a nice trophy is that it, that's the nice thing to take home. If you've won, you want something to put on your cupboard that looks good, right? So some people do certificates, some people do trophies. Do you think it's a preference? And you know, do you make your own trophies? How how big is too big? I've seen some of the the Spanish tournaments have an actual sword. The idea of going home with a sword to me is perhaps the coolest thing I've ever heard. How on earth did they afford it? How do you guys there uh, do it?
2: The UK Masters do swords. So, um, Tom, Tom got a cavalry saber last year. So, we we were driving around Nottingham with his cavalry saber at the window.
4: I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I think you find Tom didn't win the UK Masters.
2: Oh, sorry. <laughs> Tom, maybe he won. got the cavalry saber. Adam didn't get a sword. He was very upset. Oh, is that what it was? Yeah. I
4: thought Adam got. Did Adam not get a sword?
2: I can't remember what Adam got. I don't think it was a sword. But yeah, Tom. Tom definitely got a cavalry saber because we were driving around with it. Nice. <laughs> In a very responsible way. Um, we we use glasses. We use uh, engraved glasses as our prizes. So the, the first place gets a, a pint mug, and uh, everybody else gets a whiskey tumbler or a shot glass, depending where we're going down. Um, we like them with it, the practical prizes you can use. It's quite it's quite nice when you get we get photos later on of people um, sipping drinks out of their their victory mugs.
5: I tried to balance it. We've always had trophies made and we wanted them to look as nice as possible, but you don't want it to get too expensive because you don't want to feel like it's having a big impact on ticket price. Um, So ours have been affordable, but I think reasonably attractive, but you don't want to go all out on things really, really, really expensive that's just going to fit in a cupboard from that point onwards. I like the glass idea because that's going to get out and be used.
4: What about the idea of getting like a, one of the really good painters to paint like a, some custom miniatures to give away so that you get a miniature that's actually usable? So it's your prize, but you can actually put it on the table.
2: That's quite cool. Bob makes his own trophies out of um, models, which is quite nice. So the, the Easter Beast one was an Easter egg with a goblin stuck on top. Um, <laughs> and I like those because they're, they're, just, they're just a bit different. Um, you know, they're, they're probably not taking too long to do, but they're, they're different each time when you get them. So he makes his trophies themed on his tournament.
4: Cool. So we've covered the end-to-end gamut of being a tour, tournament organiser in the UK. Do you think we've missed anything? What else goes into making a tournament? Do we have any last words of wisdom? Elliot?
2: Um, keep it to time is my big one for me. Um, it, it's amazing. I think that the, the the best tournaments I've ever been to are the ones that look like no work's gone into it, but actually are really hard going. But just keep an eye on your timings and forget. That, don't forget everything takes five or ten minutes longer than you think it will. Um, so you get people that have got 50 minutes per player and then they've not given any time for the getting to your table, going having a wee, shaking hands, doing all that sort of stuff. That always takes longer than you think it will. So factor all of that into it um, and try and keep it to time because people are planning journeys home and public transport and nothing's more frustrating when you want to be getting home and you're knackered. So if, you know, if you've got to be the bad guy sometimes, just keeping it to time means that I think everybody has a, a better time. really. How about you, Matt?
5: Um, I think use the community around you uh, when you're planning it talk to people talk on Facebook talk in any way you can ask people's advice run things past people um, and if it, if something does start to go wrong during a tournament just tell people because they're really quite forgiving when they know what's going on if there's been a mistake say it if you're not quite sure about a rule you know you think oh, to run a tournament you've got to be you know the absolute expert on the rules there's always somebody there that's willing to help You can go to other tables as long as you don't, you know, not let one person rest for five minutes because you're constantly asking them. People are just helpful. Um, Yeah, the whole community will run it with you if you ask them.
4: Paul? Uh,
6: I would say don't overcomplicate things and don't underestimate a list. Um, Write everything down. It makes planning so much easier and try and front load as much as possible. If you leave it to the last minute, you're could come unstuck uh, just as you're about to go into the tournament. And you don't want to be frantic trying to run the tournament. You want to be as relaxed as possible because if you're relaxed, I think it just helps the general environment and the playing uh,
3: environment for everyone who's turned
6: up.
4: And Rob, any last words of wisdoms on organizing a tournament from across the ocean?
3: I think you guys have really much covered it. I mean, I mean the big thing is be prepared, right? That's If you're prepared, do as much as you can up front it makes the day or the days go a lot easier.
4: Okay, let's slide into a commercial break and we'll come back on the other side for shout-outs and to wrap up the show. Hey, I'm Tom Robinson, UK Master, and you're listening to Counter Charge. Okay, welcome back. So just to finish off, I'd like to say thank you to everyone for giving us your time and sharing your wisdom on tournaments. Uh, And let's do some shout-outs. Paul?
6: Yeah, so we've got um, a couple of events. Uh, Our next one's next weekend, which will be probably... um, a bit too late for getting any new players, but it's our first Vanguard tournament, um, Aces of Hearts. We've got uh, our next doubles event in October on the 26th. Um, so that's a one day event in Hertfordshire and it's um, relaxed doubles, as we've been talking about before. Uh, and then the next event after that, that we've actually got planned at the moment, is going to be Franticon 2020. We're doing the Saturday's doubles event, as we did uh, this year. And that is currently scheduled to be on the Saturday, the 7th. But the tournament, uh, the, the event actually starts on the 6th of March and running till the 8th. So we're doing a two and a half day this time.
4: Awesome. Elliot, any shout outs?
2: Um, yeah, I'll, I'll shower a tournament. So we're doing a bit of a break at the minute with third edition coming out. So our our next event is on the 18th of January at Element Games. Uh, so that's going to be a third edition event. Uh, We've no idea on points or anything at the minute. Obviously, there's a lot we don't know. Uh, I've got a shout out to my very patient wife who was being very quietly tiptoeing around me while I'd been doing this the whole, the whole podcast. Um, and I've just got to say congratulations to, to Adam Padler. I don't know when this is going out but he'll either almost be a, a, a new dad or will be a new dad by then. So I thought I'd, I'd get that one in. We've got the first Northern Kings baby.
4: It's his first little goblin. It is. <laughs> Matt Green, any I'd shout outs?
5: I'd just like, if it's okay, to say thank you to the other people that have been in our community that's been helpful um Clive from Mancic has been really good and the tournaments that he's run have been really good around us um Mark and Grant have been great sort of partners with us running their Shroud of the Reaper tournaments and great sounding boards to sort of bounce ideas off us and the Pit Gaming Shop has been brilliant coming into all of our events and just generally being helpful lending us stuff and, and bits and bobs like that so yeah thanks to all those guys
4: Matt Gorham You'd like to give us any shout-outs?
1: Uh, yes, possibly the event that I'm running on the 25th of January down in South London in a little village called Woodenstone. Um, we're looking at probably getting maybe three or four games of 1495, depending on what uh, third edition brings. Uh, maybe some special characters we'll see, um, and hopefully some nice boutique prize support as well with uh, encouragement being on upping those doubles players who have been playing at 1,000 points. And getting them up to a little bit more to play singles.
4: Cool, that's 25th of January, yeah?
1: That's right. More information on the uh, Stain of War Facebook page.
4: Okay, for myself, I'd like to give a very special shout out to everyone on the Kings of War Fanatics Forum that is remaining calm in the face of uh, version three hype. And uh, this is my personal plea to everyone to remember that the game is still the game, nothing is going to be that broken. We should have faith in the Rules Committee and just be patient. There is plenty more to come. Um, There's been a lot of noise, and everyone just needs to take a breath. And that will be my special shout-out. Rob, over to you.
3: On that note, I would uh, point everybody to Dash 28. Brenton Williams wrote an article laying out exactly what you just said about how you handle a
0: new edition change.
4: All right, Paul, take us out.
3: Until next time,
6: keep countercharging.
0: Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Countercharge. Please let us know what you thought of the show by emailing us at counterchargepodcast at gmail.com on Twitter at countercharge15. If you enjoy the show, you can help others find out about it by leaving positive reviews on iTunes. Until next time, keep countercharging. Music is a composition of Kevin MacLeod and is licensed under Creative Commons.
3: Chris Walsh and Paul Welsh.
4: Right. It's funny because the first time I met Paul, I went up and went, oh, man, I loved your, your Vanguard stuff. looks amazing. <laughs> and he looked at me like, I don't think you're talking to the right person. It's really embarrassing. And <laughs> I went to oh, Google him and I'm like, oh, no, God. I just said the wrong person. Luckily, he's And really they don't nice. look alike, do they? They're completely <laughs> yeah. different. Yeah. Paul's like a giant of a man,
3: right? <laughs> yeah, you can't miss him. <laughs>